Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Overdue Rentals podcast, the show where we are going to talk about films. Now, they are films that people are just not talking about enough. They may have been big hits and won awards, but who's talking about them now? They may have been small films that didn't get enough attention, so more people still need to talk about it. I'm Matthew Shuckman. And I'm Cinema Blends Mike Reyes. So that answers the question of who's talking about them. Well, partially because uh, normally there's a guest on this show and, well, we would be remiss if we did not mention that we have the lovely director Simon Curtis with us. Yes. Not only talk about Local Hero, but to talk about another film, another franchise that is definitely dear, at least to my heart. And still Downton talked Abbey. about. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm sorry? And still talked about. And still talked about. Uh, Downton Abbey, A New Era. Yes, folks, we are going to be talking about this, this wonderful return to Julian Fellow's world of societal drama and, and friendship. But we will also warn that there are some spoilers for New Era here because we, there were some questions that just had to be asked. And you know, obvi obviously, if talent is not allowed to talk about spoilers, they'll shoot us down very gently. But we were able to talk about some very sensitive materials here. So you may, we may have to include time codes as to where you can jump to skip. Yeah, actual, actual spoilers. Yeah, like, you know, a lot of times we'll, people will say spoilers or we'll even say spoilers. And it's not like the most, it's a spoiler, but it may be not as major as other things. This would be, I would consider, I guess, major spoiler. Yeah. But anyway, um, I, I, this is a really interesting pair to have because uh, just because of the fact that I feel like both of these films share a common thread of not having an overall villain per se, like there are mm -hmm. obstacles and there are happenings, but there's no real vicious villain sort of out to get anyone. Yeah, we'll talk about a little bit more after we talk to Simon. Uh, and you know, and I don't think we have to give people a, a necessary rundown of Downton Abbey because if they're here, they know Downton Abbey. Oh yes, uh, but in this but in this version of the film, there are two there are two plots going on at once. One dealing with a um, willed property in the south of France that is going to be given to one of the family members and having to deal with that, and then a film studio wanted to come into Down Abbey to film a uh, a, a new uh, still silent film error picture. And I will say that while there's always drama if you want to call it, in Downton Abbey, this is probably less salacious and scandalous compared to what people may have been used to or expect. And so with that being said, Local Hero is a film about an oil executive who's sent to a, what is actual fiction, fictional town in Scotland, but is in Scotland to try and buy a town out of their land for a new special oil refinery and kind of the... Mm, quirky things that go on during the 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 uh the proceedings but it's not what you normally would expect from those proceedings so so basically local hero could be summed up in one word drainage wow we're we didn't even look we're we're not that's going to be the only there will be blood <laughs> reference i think that ever comes up in this discussion <laughs> because yeah. i think go ahead mike sorry no, yes, no, I'm agreeing with you, yes. Yeah. Because I think what we have to do first is let's get Simon in here, start talking about these things, and then we'll go into them a little later. I think that sounds right, right? That sounds only fair. So uh, Simon Curtis, director of Downton Abbey, A New Era, talking with us about Local Hero on Overdue Rentals. 
Sir, welcome to the rental counter. Hello. Hey, Simon, how you doing? Hello, Simon. Good to meet you both. Great to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us. Of course. Oh, yes, especially because uh, just as the a resident Downton fan, a new era is just a it, it is another one of those warm blanket films that I, I really do enjoy. And it's a fantastic sequel to to what came before. Good. Thank you. What's interesting is this is the second time that you and Michael Engler have kind of done this interesting swap of, of positions because I believe you were supposed to do the chaperone and then he directed that one. And then he I guess everyone assumed he was going to come back for New Era, but then you slipped in for New Era. Uh, how did that come about? It's interesting. No one said that before. I mean, I, uh, it's the life of being a director and a producer, and I admire Michael very much. And um, uh, uh, I, I don't, I mean, I think the truth is he was doing Gilded Age when this film happened anyway. So I don't think he was ever available to do this one. Oh, very true. When you join on, though, to do something that has, as historic as it is for, for people as Downton Abbey. Is there a certain comfortability going into it knowing that your main cast know their characters so well that you can kind of maybe let go a little bit and focus on other aspects a little bit more compared to wondering about having to sit down with them and, and talk about things about their characters? Yes, I mean, uh, well, I don't, I wouldn't put it quite those terms. I would say that as a director, you benefit hugely from the fact the character actors know their characters so deeply. And, you know, no one has really made this point that this film shares a, a kinship with boyhood, actually, because in the way that um, that those characters, P mm. Patricia Arquette and, and, and the, the, the boy and the family, age through 12 years, well, the audience and the actors have had a similar experience with this. I mean, they've been working together for 12 years, you know. Well, that's funny because I was actually asking Laura Carmichael how she felt Edith had changed from the Edith we see in the pilot to the one that we see in A New Era. And I, I'm, I'm sad that I never made that connection because that would have been just a great sort of thing to throw in there. I mean, yeah. six seasons in another movie is nothing to sniff Well, at. I mean, actually, I mean, let's think about this. I mean, I suppose <clears throat> in the Fast and Furious films and the Harry Potter films, those actors uh, aged with their, their, the sequels, but... Is this almost unique, this group of actors who've been together this long? I mean, let's think, when, when else has that happened in, in cinema history? Yeah. No, oh, exactly. Like, a lot of franchises are just good with turnover. Yeah. What, what about, though, bringing in the, the, new, the new cast that have to join on for just this time? Because to me, and I'm going to try and say this without giving things away for people who haven't seen the movie yet, but for me, Dominic West is almost like a, like a trick casting, because in that type of role, you may think he's coming in with an ulterior motive and it kind of goes against what you may expect putting him in there. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 loved, I love him as an actor and I love him in this part, you know, and I think that uh, he didn't really, I don't think he was a Downton uh, viewer. Mm -hmm. I, I think uh, he didn't really know the world, but he, he, he fitted in wonderfully. And I loved working with Hugh Dancy as the director because I was able to channel some of the agony and ecstasy of being a director in his <laughs> performance. And Laura Haddock just steals her scenes in this film as Myrna. Just that whole riff on singing in the rain kind of kind of warmed my heart. And I loved yeah. watching well, her play that out. That's, I mean, she is sensational, but I, might say, I know it's perceived as a riff on singing in the rain, but in fact, 
our producer, Gareth Neem's grandfather was the great Ronald Neem. And he, bear with me on this, he was an assistant director to Alfred Hitchcock on the 1929 film Blackmail, where this exact thing happened, that during the making of the film, it shifted from a silent film to a talkie. And uh, you should look at the, uh, you should do this uh, in your series, Blackmail, because on the DVD, they, in the extras, they have a scene, both the silent version of that scene and then the, the talkie version of the scene. And this is probably where Singing in the Rain got their story from because mm. the actress was Eastern European and um, uh, her accent wasn't right for the character. So they had another English actress live dub uh, the film. Uh, so that's where this story came from, not Singing in the Rain. I gladly and honorably stand corrected. <laughs> that I'm, look, if you want to come back for blackmail, we'll bring you back for blackmail. Yeah, okay, okay. But uh, that's that's really interesting because another thing I did want to bring up is, was there anything that you and the cast had to sort of unlearn when it came to shooting the silent film segments of New Era? Well, we did talk a lot about what this kind of um, style of the acting was. Uh, and it was just fascinating because we did have a silent movie expert, you know, who told us that, in the days of the silent, when they were shooting silent, there'd be a musician playing the piano live uh, to help the atmosphere. Or when the cameras first arrived, they were so loud, they had to be encased in a big box. What about though the, the fact that, do you relish that you got to take, not everybody, but a large part of the Downton cast out, to, out of Downton Abbey for like a large swath of time? Well, it's hard to, uh, explained how glorious it was to escape from lockdown London to get to the Côte d'Azur, especially as we didn't know we were going to be able to go till the last minute. Uh, and it was just really fun seeing them all in a different environment, in a house or villa that it couldn't be more different to uh, Downton Abbey and so on. So that was a real pleasure. Now, I'm going to go into a spoiler, but we will warn our audience that there are spoilers for Downton Abbey A New Era. Uh, but there is one specific day on set I wanted to ask about because you are unfortunately the person that got to film the Dowager Countess's final breath. And I wanted to get your recollection of what that day on set was like for everyone because it had to have been just really rough. I, I don't it was know. A very, to... It was a very emotional day on three levels because obviously the, the characters were saying goodbye to the matriarch of the character's family. Uh, the cast was saying goodbye to a, one, a legendary actress they adored. And also as a group of actors who've lived and worked together for 12 years, looking around the room, we all knew who had lost a partner in real life or a parent in real life and so on. So it couldn't, it's hard to uh, underestimate or it's, it's impossible to uh, overestimate how emotional a day that was. Was it a, did you get it in one take or did you have to go through? No, it took a whole day. Oh, because I just remember like the, right before the movie came out, everybody was obviously speculating that Maggie Smith would be departing. And then there was that, uh, I don't remember which publication it was, but there was uh, one, I think it was a, a tabloid that was like, oh, an iconic character is dying. And then everybody's like, oh, well, that's settled. But then there's that clever misdirect throughout the film that sort of keeps even, it kept even me guessing. Yeah, exactly. That, that was just very clever writing, I think. 
Yeah, because you have to you have to wonder when when all of a sudden Melda Staunton's taking a bunch of naps. Are we, are we are we being led to somewhere we don't believe we should go? Again, spoiler. Sorry, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> we're also we're also here, you know, because we love here on Over the Rentals talking about films that we think people don't pay enough attention to anymore. Um, and we were here to talk to you about uh, Bill Forsyth's 1983 uh, Local Hero, which was a movie that I saw very young. My father showed me um, when, when I was like, I don't know, maybe like nine, nine or 10 years old. Um, and it always meant a lot to me. I'm just wondering, you know, kind of where it, it sits in, in, in your recollection, your memory as being a film that you enjoyed. Yeah, I, I mean, that was one of those, uh, I guess, indie films uh, in the glorious period that I, I remember loving not least because of the, the, the legendary Mark Knopfler score. Yeah. Ah. The, uh, the Chris Menjes uh, cinematography. And I've always been drawn to, to transatlantic relationship, you know, and some of my films have expressed that. And, uh, you know, there's a wonderful contrast between, I think it's Houston, isn't it? Uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, uh, Scotland uh, in the Highlands, you know, and it's... Uh, I rewatched it recently. It's an extraordinarily satisfying, quirky, bizarre film with Burt Lancaster going on about the comets and God knows what. But uh, it's definitely worth a, 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 a rewatch. I, I almost feel that it's it's definitely a film too that almost became more known for the score, for the Mark Knopfler score than the film itself. I think a lot of people just know the soundtrack and maybe even never saw the film. Very possibly. And there's actually a a stage musical uh, on its way in the UK, I believe. Yeah, I think they put, out, they put it on a production in 2019, right? Probably right before COVID. Hit. I think so, yeah. Yeah. And that, that quirky is not a word that a lot of people would ascribe to Burt Lancaster. But <laughs> right. what's interesting is I revisited Sweet Smell of Success not yeah. too long ago. And between these two roles, that just really does highlight his quirk. Yeah, yeah indeed. And they're all great in it. And actually... Uh, it's quite emotional for me because there are two or three of my friends who are no longer with us in the film, Kenny Ireland and so on. And um, uh, uh, Peter Rygart was fantastic. I was reading somewhere that Michael Douglas and Henry Winkler passed yeah. on that. Uh, actually, uh, and um, seeing Henry Winkler in Barry, I think he might have been rather good in that part. Um, oh, yeah. but, uh, but no, it's a, it's, a, it's a very pleasurable experience. There's also, yeah, I mean, just not only the Burt, uh, Lancaster being quirky, but that whole uh, relationship with him and what his like I don't know what you want to call it, spiritual psychiatrist that yeah. berates him is just yeah, that's so so weird. Out the there. yeah, yeah. And also the design is extraordinary, like the, that staircase and then the, the ceiling that becomes the, the the solar system or whatever. Yeah. And then they get to uh, Scotland and go straight into a sort of a laboratory where Jenny Seagrove is swimming. I mean, it's, it's, it's just not what you expect at all. Yeah. And what's also unexpected is just how well it holds up because this is both a product of its time where it is very 80s Texas oil money and that sort of forward looking aesthetic that you always saw in that sort of thing. But then also it doesn't age the film. Right, but in fact, you know, oil is, is uh, unfortunately very much in the forefront of the debate at the moment, isn't it? Yeah. It's also, it's also interesting, I think, because it's definitely a film that goes against the grain in a lot of ways, because this in, it's been, you know, there have been other films before and after that kind of do the same thing, but it's more so that the townspeople are trying to save their town, where the yeah. townspeople here are just like, 
we want the money. And so it takes that, that alternate look about, because look, I mean, not to go too deep, I guess, at this point, but it does take that whole mermaid analogy and talking about this kind of mystical pull that something can have on people and it's going to change them whether it's one way or the other. Yeah. It's also just, this also feels like one of the most Frank Capra movies that Capra never made just right. because of the sort of the shenanigans and then ultimately yeah. the very human sort of core to it, especially with Peter Rieger, because you, it, it's not as adversarial as you would think. He doesn't come in here thinking, oh, these are just a bunch of hayseeds. It's no problem. It's, he, he thinks he's got the advantage, but he still respects. Well, him. actually, it's quite interesting because Dennis Lawson is super smart. You know, yeah. they're sort of like twins in a way, Peter <laughs> and Dennis, you know, and uh, he's not the sort of, you expect him to be the sort of um, local, uh, you know, uh, eccentric loser, but he's not. He's super smart, you know. This, I mean, look, I mean, there's also, going back to the quirky, quirkiness of it, though, there are just like those those scenes where like the whole rabbit thing is just like they're everybody's reaction to that being the nonchalantness of it happening to like the not really getting that upset about it happening from from Rieger's side it's just such an interesting thing, thing to watch that I don't think anybody would ever do again well it would be a Netflix show for a start wouldn't it <laughs> probably oh yeah Netflix show you'd probably have uh Mark Duplass writing it and then uh who knows where they would probably set it somewhere new yeah i don't know no i can imagine that very same story you know uh, in scotland and the americans come to town you know <laughs> there's also an interesting thing i think because i mean look it's what peter capaldi's i think second listing for a credit but i there's so many people outside of the uk i think that think he didn't exist until something like the thick of it and they they Doctor who well, I mean, or, well, and then, and then, and then for, there are people who only probably knew him once Doctor Who hit. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, like, I think it's great to finally have something for people who go back. Because, look, when I first saw Local Hero, Peter Rieger, to me, was Animal House. You know, so I'm like, oh, I get to see Boone in something. <laughs> and now there are audiences who didn't know Peter Capaldi for so long saying, oh, my God, look, here's young Peter Capaldi. Well, going, going back to Downton, you know, the wire to Downton yeah. is a long journey for Dominic West, you know, so... Uh, it's full of that. Or Hannibal for Hugh Dancy, or Correct. even yeah. Laura Haddock being Peter Quill's mom in Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. yeah, and we actually had a wonderful experience when we were in France talking of old films because Natalie Bai was in. Oh. And of course, she'd been in one of the all-time great films about filmmaking, Day for Night, the Truffaut film. And uh, one day we screened it when we were in quarantine in the south of France, mm. uh, one night for the cast and crew, day for night. And it's a love letter to a cast and crew making a film in the south of France. And we were a cast and crew making a film in the south of France with Natalie Bai, who'd been the script girl in that film and now is our, our leading lady. It was one of the all-time great moments. Well, that, that actually brings up another question. I'm thinking about it, kind of going back to Downton. With that you having to quarantine, whether or not everybody was fine or somebody got sick, but you, you, you traveled, it was in a time where you had a kind of quarantine before you could get back into things to make sure everybody was okay. Does it allow you new research or new you know, workings into the whole production process that you may wanna build in once hopefully this is all completely gone where we say, oh, you know what? Let's have a two day here schedule where it's just we get, we get to go back and do more things that we didn't get to do before. 
No, it wasn't that kind of film. You know, we had we we, we didn't lose any. We did over ten thousand COVID tests, but we never shut down. Uh, we didn't know we were going to be able to get to France, but we did, and we made every single day. So, uh, and we didn't do any pickups or reshoots at all. Now, had you had you already been a fan of the show, or did you have to do some sort of catch up to to sort of you know bring yourself up to speed with a new era? No, I'd, I'd watched every single moment of it. I was I was actually before we got into, I was wondering is like, I, I mean I know I know obviously you know most people know that your wife is involved very heavily in the show. They know who she is. So I'm like wondering like maybe he wanted to stay away from the show at, at first because you know you, maybe you guys don't watch your own work. So yeah, I was thinking of the same thing. Um, well, it was very much Elizabeth. I mean, I had a lot of friends on both sides of the camera and I'd worked with most of the cast uh, before, but I always thought of this as her, her job. So mm. I asked her permission to join. <laughs> <laughs> dear, dear, they're, they're asking me to do a new era. Would you mind terribly if I just pop into the director's chair here? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But it is, again, you know, going back to that whole feeling of, that you know the the span we're you know talking about the boyhood comparison and, and people living with it for so long it, it i think a lot of people are going to go into the film just saying oh i get to see a downton film but it's also playing it's almost a meta reference to itself because as the years went by they were in from 1912 to 1930 so many different things changed you get to experience all those things changing whether it's just even more automobiles showing up on the road to again going sound in the film then it must be a wonderful experience to kind of try to explore those those feelings yeah yeah, the, the, the script was the gift that goes on giving. You know, it's uh, full of just amazing um, the details, you know, and uh, it, was, it was a really fun experience, very special experience. No, I'm not sure how much knowledge you would have to this point. And I forgot to ask Julian when I spoke with him, but do you happen to know if Dame Maggie Smith's return in a new era was posed on the condition that this would be her final appearance? No idea. Okay. No, that's a simple straight. Yeah, that's just me. Yeah. Just arrow through the shoulder. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, good. You let me down easy. <laughs> <laughs> great to talk to you guys. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Stay safe. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thanks for that. Thank you, Simon. Thank you for joining us. That was always so enlightening to talk to anybody, but especially somebody who has kind of had their finger, their fingers, their hands and such, you know, storied works. Yes, I mean, uh, the, the, just the, the the stories that he had from Downton, but also the insight that he had on on local hero. Just that was, again, another wonderful, delightful chat with someone who who clearly understands the the, the process we have here at Overdue Rentals. Yeah, and, yeah, and look, I mean, to go back to Downton Abbey to talk about it because I in the opening I mentioned how I didn't think it was personally. I didn't think it was as you know, quote unquote, scandalous or you know, I don't want to say dramatic because it's still dramatic, I guess, even though it's, it's very lighthearted and always has been, there's always this underlining tones of like some very serious things where they didn't, this felt so much more lighthearted all overall that it's easy for anybody who maybe never even, you know, witnessed any previous Downton Abbey, just join in and be like, oh, this is, this is delightful. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's actually a little easier to jump into Downton Abbey, the motion picture without a background mm. than in A New Era, because A New Era actually goes and references certain things and characters from the show. Sure. Especially with the Dowager Countess, they mention a, a brief interlude she had with a Russian prince, Prince Kuragin. 
who, you know, that's that I, I would really be interested to see if there's, there's more that Julian Fellows may have that he wants to delve into in some sort of medium with the Dowager Countess's backstory, because he, he clearly has a, he has an interest in it. Down Abbey, the early years. But, but that's, but that's, but that's goes, but that goes back to also saying though, I, I personally, I think that even with those references, like there are a lot of, look, there are a lot of things. I'll use Harry Potter as an example, where fans of the books can point out stuff that they see in the movies that don't really get explained and it means something to them. But to people who are watching the, the movies, they just, they have to fly by, it doesn't make a difference. And the yeah. same thing happens here, but it happens here the same way it would happen in any story. Let's say this was the first thing ever made for Down Abbey and Mary's explaining about her first marriage and what happened to her husband. <sighs> you know, that's just the story. It's just story within this story. And if you didn't witness it on the show, it, you know, it, it wasn't going to change the current film you're watching any, any differently. No, true. I mean, I'm just saying comparatively, New Era is the one where it's a little more for the fans, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. And yeah, but yeah, to your point, these stories are told and woven in there. And if you don't have the backstory, great. But if you watch this and want to go watch the show, yeah. that just makes it even more rewarding. I wonder, I wonder if there's going to be somebody who watches this first and then they're going to go back and watch, then start from the beginning of the show and do like this reverse version of it and sort of engineer this amazing a through line that nobody ever noticed because they just watched from the beginning. Down to Nabby Memento. Yes. <laughs> De De Demento. No. Demento. There's, there's Dr. Demento. Wouldn't work. But anyway. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I you know, it's, it's funny too. And, you know, the, this, again, me not going into the actual spoiler thing, you know, I couldn't help but think of, because look, I'm not trying to say that Dominic West only does one type of role. That's never the case. But in, oh, no. and he, and, and he 100% though, the look that he fits so perfectly that era a movie star look but if just knowing that is dominic west and knowing what has or there's a lot of people know him from specifically and i'm not just talking about the wire you can be talking about the affair you can be talking about multiple films it doesn't make a difference oh yeah or even the bbc him, yeah you just have to be some like some like uncaring cad who's there with an ulterior motive to like steal something from somebody or, or will be found stealing silverware or something or fine china whatever it is um and you know i don't think it's giving anything away saying that that's not the case but so like i i almost felt like it was a trojan horse in a way when he casting oh, happened there's plenty of trojan horses in this movie but that's yeah, yeah. definitely one of them because of the fact that just you look at dominic west and it's like and our rake has arrived. Yeah. Yeah. And then just the way that the film subverts that image and really gives him just this really warm spot and role to play that uh, that's, again, as a, a fan of the show, that was something that really fulfilled something for a character who yes. you, started you started out despising this Whoa. person. I wouldn't even say that much because I don't want to give it away for people who, who may, you know, who, who are familiar with it because the way I would put it is, it's a character, because I won't mention, I, Dominic West's character is a character who's basically almost a, a MacGuffin for a possible closed end story, because who knows, because there are plenty of open roads for future Downton films or, or, or more TV based on what they left open here. But that could be either from never seeing that character again from where they go with Dominic, uh, Dominic's character, to a guy, I should say, um that's the character by madden yeah. <laughs> um oh guy dexter guy dexter yeah yeah uh to um or 
that we just know that character went off and we don't have to worry about them anymore. And, you know, I, again, I won't go to where you were going because I don't want to, I, I we have so many spoilers already. I don't want to spoil it for people who love the show that much. Yeah, no, that was, that was definitely a nice sort of, it was interesting because Downton Abbey one kind of looked like it was going that's so, a, a similar sort of way. And then that's sort of undone here, but then redone in a different way. And it's charming. Go see this film, please, because <laughs> I would love for them to do a Downton 3. And I am very curious as to where they would go with that. Yeah, I mean, like, like we said, there are plenty of doors open at the end. I mean, there are always are doors open, but it, it, it almost felt like they were very specifically planting seeds for doing another one. Again, that's also very much so just like just in case it happens not necessarily planned we don't know so you you will see when we will see but also let's talk about local hero please let's because i i know you would mention that again the amount of stories you have about movies your dad exposed you yeah. to you name this to my father showed me and also because my father would do certain certain things like that with me too but I, the way i actually oh go on no, no 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 please 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 go ahead no no you go well, I was going to say, well, it definitely was a case where just like we were talking about, it was like, and I was actually very upset because I, you know, for anybody, if you were to see a video of us right now, I don't have my vinyl copy of Local Hero soundtrack display behind me because apparently I don't have it anymore because my father had a copy and I thought I took it. Apparently I didn't, but that's the whole point. It's like, it was more so like always seeing it in the collection, hearing him play it and then going, oh, it's a movie. Let me show you this. And plus also because I did watch Animal House way too young, I wanted to see what other people from Animal House did. So it was just like, let me show you Local Hero. <laughs> but my, I cut you off though, I apologize, please. That's perfectly fine because I, I wanted you to get that out because it's like, I saw something, it's like, oh, he's probably got more, more about his dad shown. Him. So I, I, again, part of Overdue Rentals is how did we get here and yeah. why is it an Overdue Rental? And how I got here was I had rented this disc during quarantine. Like, oh, okay. Interesting. I had rented it because Local Hero was something that I had vaguely heard of. And I, I think it was 80s All Over might have convinced me to do it. Mm. Uh, the podcast that Drew McWeenie and uh, Scott Weinberg had where they were going through the whole decade. And they were trying to do like every major film of the 80s and sort of critique them in like capsules. And they had raved about this. And I needed to see it myself. So I put it on my Netflix disc list and finally watched it during quarantine and was just blown away by how beautiful its heart was mm. and how fun and comedic, but at the same time, never cruel to anyone. This wasn't one of those movies where you, you think about a story of like a small Scottish village and oil executives and yeah. you all, it's like two steps removed from a kid's film. Because you could very much have, oh, the kids are going to save the town or the adults are going to fuck with the oil industry and save the town. Yeah, because in, in a lot of ways, while there is a quote unquote hopeful ending, I guess, in a way, it's a movie that never really answers any of what you would normally expect from something like this because it is, and I, I know we talked about it very briefly, but there is that whole mermaid lore throughout the film. So like, it's not throughout the film, actually it doesn't hit until like the middle of the film um, where Olsen and, uh, and Marina are like on the beach and they see the seals and he says, you know, sailors used to think they were, they were mermaids. And she goes, well, they were mistaken, they were wrong. And then later on you see her and she's got the webbed feet. Now it's not a tale, but it's this idea of like this kind of like, oh, she lives so much in the water that maybe, and like her 
pulling pulling him out gives him these ideas of how to like change things later on in the end and just the mystique of you know uh of of happer's you know love of the stars and like kind of like astrology pulls back into this other man's you know love of astrology and so it's this it's this, it's basically this morality tale and again and then also i know i'm going so far and, and ranting in this the, but mac Frozen. you know be basically being drawn in by this place it's it's basically the power it's the, the town is the mermaid the idea of this like quaint quaint style of life even though the townspeople want money they don't know what they they say they know what they're going to do with it they'll just end up in another small town because basically they don't have to worry about money where they are right now it may be boring to some people or nothing like that you know and yes they don't get out as much uh, out, out of their town but it's like it's the power that that kind of place has on people to just kind of change the way they think. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I I just, I lost myself in all that. Honestly, you make me want to watch this film again, again, (laughs) because of the way that you just laid it out. Because again, like this is, I I still can't believe this is an 83 movie, but it really is something that is timeless in the way that it, it, it sort of approaches this, this story and I first of all seeing Peter Riegert playing like this functional like leading man like that was someone that something that you probably people really haven't ascribed to Peter Riegert because he's been mostly you know a character actor nothing wrong with that we love character actors at Overdue Rentals they're the best actually uh yeah because they can do anything they get the best stories and you get some of the most overdue rentals through them and it's especially because of leading roles like like Peter Riegert in here and just the way that he lands that gig to begin with in the film is hysterical because it's like, oh yeah, he's, he's the Scottish connection. And he's like, my parents changed their name when they came to America because they thought McIntyre was American. Yeah. And it's so it's the perfect choice, I think, for that name where it's a Scottish name. But like, yeah, if somebody told me McIntyre was American, I would probably say, yeah. I, you know, like I'd almost agree with it. it, fe- it it's the perfect choice for that, for that, that, story, that storyboard name, yeah. All right, so this film was released on February, let's see, February 17th, 1983. So, wow, that's literally nine months before I was born. So that's kind of cool. Now I know know how old you are. Now now everyone knows. Damn it. The the interesting thing is, I don't know if you you read, um, because one of the producers said, because the idea was they they were trying to get Burt Lancaster and, you know, the movie was going to get made even if they didn't land him, but the studio was giving them a hard time with financing. And once the studio learned that they were going to get, that they could get Burt Lancaster, they gave him an, they gave him an injection of like $2 million. Cause I think that was Burt's requested um, uh, fee for the film, but on top of it, it, it just, it matched on top of what they already had. So they actually ended up with an influx of like $200,000 to the budget, including after paying Burt Lancaster to be in the film to make it. So it probably helped out with a lot of things with getting, that gorgeous cinematography, especially at the end there when they got the helicopter coming in and just how like, with, with the, you know, Northern Lights aren't running at that point, but like the way it looks is just, it's, it's almost mystical. Um, so yeah, they actually ended up with a like, special little influx of cash to make the film at the end of the day. That's another thing that I'll bring up before I go to the usual who was at the box office at that yeah. time, because this is gorgeous. It is very like beautifully shot. And that is, I mean, it, I, I read somewhere that it was basically compared, this movie was compared to a fairy tale in one of the yeah. movies. 
I forget well, that, which that fits, it was. That fits in with the with the with that with the whole you know mermaid esque you know kind of uh, yeah feeling about it. Yeah, because it it, ha- it it in essence is a fairy tale in so many ways. And you have Chris Menges, or uh, I don't know. I'm sorry if I was mispro- I'm sorry if I've mispronounced your name, sir. But Chris Menges was the cinematographer for the film. Yeah. Who just again? He and Mark Knopfler are probably two of the the unsung heroes of this film that is already unsung enough. I, I would call Mark Knopfler maybe the hero in a lot of ways because again, I do feel that the soundtrack has outlived the movie and the fact that there are people who know it but don't even know it was a movie or have never seen the movie. They just know the soundtrack. And again, that that's something I didn't know because I I'd only heard the soundtrack when I. I saw it like I, I mostly knew Mark Knopfler from Princess Bride before this. What? Like not even Dire Straits? Well, I knew Dire Straits. I didn't know he was in Dire Straits, but I never put two and two together on that. Oh my god! Um, but there's there's a lot of there's a lot of other weird, not weird, but I guess you know, interesting things you can point out about the film too, because we did talk about again during the during the discussion about Peter Rieger, Burt Lancaster, Peter Peter Capaldi, and and while Dennis Lawson's name came up, Dennis Lawson's a guy who I think that a lot of audiences don't know as well as they should because he's done so much great work, but there are probably, I don't want you to with gaggles, millions of adoring sci-fi fans know him. Maybe not, they don't realize it's him because he's wedged from the Star Wars films. Yep. And Ewan McGregor's uh, uncle, if I remember correctly. Is he really? I didn't know that. If I'm not mistaken, Dennis Lawson is Ewan McGregor's uncle. But again, this is February 83. Jedi comes out in a couple months. So could you imagine like the the handful of, or like the, the limited sample of Star Wars fans that actually go see local hero and it's like, wait, that's Wedge. Yeah. And just that automatically sparks something for them. And again, like you knew that Peter Rieger from Animal House was going to be in here. People hearing Peter Capaldi's name will remember him from Thick of It or Doctor Who. This is like, baby peter capaldi like if all right if any capaldi fans are out there listening to us and i'm sure you are (laughs) the young peter capaldi feeding a rabbit is something that you need to see in your life (laughs) what is young Peter Capaldi? it's funny because he's somebody that whether you look at him in something like local hero or look at him something like you know talking about like in the thick of it or whatever it is you know or take into account that the man's won an oscar yeah but it's, it's just it's just something where like he somehow has never changed, but he's changed a lot. You know, he's, I, I don't know how to explain it. There's just something about him. Like, it, cause he's also somebody that you can look at and just go like, you always know it's him. It's like, even, even at that young age, it's like, you know, it's, and just wa- look, just watching him at the beginning of the movie where he's trying to hide the placard with McIntyre's name on it. He's just trying to pick him up. It's just like, it's just this wonderful, like comedic stretch that is like, it, it's not like something we haven't seen him do since, but it just, it just, it's just got the special essence about it, watching him do it then compared to if he was doing it now. That's just like perfect. Yeah. It's, and always the, the smile. You can always tell it's Peter Capaldi with the smile because the smile has not changed. His voice hasn't changed. He sounds exactly the same. A lot too. Still yeah, there's just a ton of just, you know Peter Capaldi when you see Peter Capaldi. Look, I'm, I'll, I'll do that. And I very rarely like to do this kind of thing, like where I like to uh, compare it to a very modern film, I would say, a, a, a performance that is. But like, I again, I haven't seen everything Peter Capaldi's done his entire life, but I've seen plenty of stuff knowing before, you know, he became more of a, a well-known mainstream name. But like watching again, do those kind of quirky things at the beginning, 
it's almost you didn't see it again until the recent Suicide Squad, where you see he's dancing in over dead bodies on his way into his, like his meeting at the beginning of the movie. It's like getting to see him do those things because he did his Doctor Who was a little more not serious, I would say, but he was a little more contained, um, you know, physically than I think some of his other counterparts. You would disagree. I see you're no, no, I am to agree, and I am also agree. I will also throw in the fact that while the writing didn't always show up for Peter Capaldi, Peter Capaldi always showed up for the writing. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of my biggest problems with the twelfth Doctor run because Peter Capaldi and Pete and Stephen Moffat should have been just this barnstorming run, and I feel like it was sort of starting to run out of gas halfway th- in the second half of Matt Smith's run, and then just the Capaldi run was very hit or miss for at least for me but he was not the hit or miss angle it was well, the I won't, I won't get into too much of this I'm gonna go into a whole big Doctor Who conference now um because again I was just trying to point out that I love seeing him do this more you know oh yeah just more eccentric flowing fun thing but to me I almost think that I understand what you're saying I'm not saying it's wrong but like I think there was a, a big point thinking about going from Tenet to Smith even though they were different, they did have a certain similar type of energies, like having to, you had to change it. It couldn't be the same thing. So it was the right move. It just maybe didn't work out for them. I'll, that's all I'll say. Oh no, I, I, I am not saying that I regret Peter Capaldi's casting at all. I'm glad it happened. But again, there's, there's stuff we could talk about with that in like a separate Doctor Who episode. No, that's, that's, a whole, that's a whole other thing. Yeah, but anyway, <laughs> back to local hero, back to Peter Capaldi. Again, it's just a wonderful... This is another one of those movies where people could look back on it in retrospect and it's one of those, oh, them, oh, them, oh, that person sort of buffet. Well, it's also too, going But it's never distracting. That, yeah, oh no, absolutely. But, but going beyond that, going back to your point that you made during the interview about the idea of how pressing it is with the whole oil talk now, is that it's even more like a, a, a very specific line early on when they first arrive and they go to the lab and the, the, the two scientists who came up with this, refi- this special, you know, refinery plan are talking about like, well, there is no other way. And, and it's just, and, and like thinking about it, it's like the idea is like, well, I, th- I think he said, I can't remember now. I think he says like, what are you going to do? And I don't think he says wind or solar or anything like that, but he, he makes like a comment. It's like, what other thing are you going to do? And he mentions something. And I'm like, well, yeah, there's, there's other things, guys. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's that's sort of the elephant in the room, I guess, when you think about it, because that's, you know, oil, uh, nature guards its treasures jealously, and yeah. it's up to us to get them. Sorry, I had to fly there. <laughs> nature is listening. Nature is sending its hitmen or hit flies. I, I do also want to go back, though, to the whole relationship between Burt Lancaster's Happer and this character of Moritz. Well, again, I can't remember what his specific title is, but just watching him try to slowly destroy this man is just great. And so like when he appears on the outside of the window and he's letter by letter putting it up, it's like, I can't remember what it said. It was something like, I know it ended in motherfucker, but I can't remember what the beginning of it said. I think it just said, I think it just said uh, uh, Mr. Happer is a motherfucker. I think something like that is what he was trying to spell out. I was just like, because that, it was, it was so... It's almost like Pink Pantherish with the whole, you know, Cato always having to try and surprise Clouseau so he could be on his feet. It's like, he man would pop out of nowhere. The fact that Happer had, you know, like, look, it's true. These things do exist. I'm not trying to say they don't, but like the myth of, you know, the, the, the CEO having a secret room for sex. But Happer has a secret room where it's like his apartment. 
where it has like his <laughs> office opens up his oh, a secret wall opens up and he's got a brick uh, a, a brick inlaid kitchen with you know it looks like it's like the middle of your house like you know somewhere in LA and then all of a sudden Mortz is calling him on the phone it's like berating him it's, it's so good it's just so good no and then of course that's just another one of those gags where it's like so of its time because that you know that was like a riff on pop psychology which was be- yes. pop, which also with astrology which yes. is becoming very popular with the in and the now in the in the Reagan 80s well i also find funny too is, is that um cuz People don't believe me. This is great, by the way. People, you can't see this. I'm not going to even say what's happening, but it's great. And I'm going to leave this in. But what I love is when I, all right, my junior high, I think I mentioned this before. I don't remember. My junior high school was very special. People still don't believe me. They've torn it down now. I'm sure I can find pictures of it. But my junior high school had a planetarium in it. Wow. He had, there was, there was, he wasn't even a teacher. There was just a guy who ran a planetarium. And we were every so often go in and he'd do all the, the stuff for us. So like watching the planetarium open up in Happer's office too, I'm just feeling it's like having something special that only you could have. It's like, well, yeah, a bunch of us had it, but like my junior high school had a planetarium. It's like, I feel like I'm Happer. But yeah, but his obsession with this astrology was just like, because when he first comes on and he first brings Mac into the office, he tells him, look at Virgo. And tell me this, you don't know, like you're starting, you don't know at that point. So you're starting to wonder if it's a code, like this special business code that he needs to know and he doesn't know, but no, it's, it's fucking, this guy's in astrology, man. Yeah. And you know, there's, there's worse things that a CEO could be into. Yes. But you shouldn't run your business based on astrology or anything based on astrology. Cause it is bullshit. No, no. I mean, astronomy is pretty too, but astrology, definitely not. Well, ast- yeah, astronomy is that's, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah. Not- like he, he's also into astronomy. It's just he can yes. put astronomy and astrology together. Yeah, he can quirk. Yeah, he's the type of person who opens up a paper and reads the little thing saying the, 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 the month he was born. And I know a lot of people believe in this. And they're going to get angry at us for saying it. Sorry, guys. <laughs> bullshit. What's not bullshit, though? That you should go and cross local hero off your overdue rentals list after you go see the new Downton Abbey when it comes out in the theater. Downton Abbey, a new era hits US theaters. If you're a UK listener, you've already experienced the spoilers because it's been out since late April. That is true. However, and for our domestic listeners, if you want to catch up on Downton Abbey before you see a new era, there's two ways you can do this. Uh, I want, if we have show notes, I believe we have show notes, we should leave the links to focus features uh, by the way, thank you to Focus Features for letting us do the junket day for Downton Abbey: A New Era. And in that regard, there is two. There are two wonderful catch-up videos that catch you up on the series and the first motion picture. Before you go into the second thing, I have a question for you. Yes, and because this is something I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen when people go to the movie theater. And I didn't see the first movie in the theater either. But at my screening, they did play the recap for the movie before the, before the film. Are they going to do that when people go to multiplexes? I don't know. And I wish we would have asked. But the thing was, that showed before my screener too. And that's the video that's online summing up uh, the actual uh, first film. Like that video is online for people to watch. They might show it. I, I guess it, they might do it some, some sort of special thing because I know Alamo Drafthouse had a special like screening where they did like a, the first press screening was like a dinner and everything. And they might've shown it then. I wonder if they would keep it in there because they love pre-real stuff like that. But also I wonder if that'll be at the fan event, which I think 
this the Wednesday before the film opens. I don't know when we'll be dropping this episode, but I think it's the Wednesday or a couple of days before the film actually opens. Some theaters are doing fan events where they're showing the film a little early, and I wouldn't be surprised if that might be in there as well. All right. Sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. No, no problem. No, we're trying to inform the people because if you have not experienced Downton yet, we want you to do it in the best way possible. Because again, Julian Fellows just created something beautiful here. And if you have not seen it and you happen to be a Peacock Plus subscriber, all six seasons and the first film are available at the time of this recording. Netflix has the six seasons, but we'll be pulling them at the end of May. Yes, May As well as pulling Top Gun. So if you need to catch up on either of those aristocratic sagas, you should do that immediately through your Netflix account. But since I'm already doing, you know, uh, already taking care of some business. Um, Where can people find us? Yes, I was, I didn't want to. I, I, I do, I do. <laughs> I knew we were going to it, but the thing is, I like when you say that some people might be disappointed if they don't hear Matthew Shuckman saying, where can people find us? Because it's like a trademark. Just yeah. like our, our beautiful rambling opening, which quick sidebar, uh, I, in the beginning, I was like, we maybe we should try, we should try to write something like catchy and short, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But now I'm like, no, because that's part of just what's so fun about the episode is hearing you come up with that out of the hat every time we go to it. And I just, I thank you for that. I just like it being natural. That's all I'm saying. I don't saying we, we shouldn't script certain things. I don't know, but everybody, it's all natural guys. Just like my hair. Well, yeah. And mine too. Well, mine is the tint. Uh, but indeed, like just overdue rentals. We are a, a free range podcast that is as organic as, as the apple you pull off the tree. And if you are looking for more of the crop of episodes that we have, we're bordering on 50 and uh, we're going to have to do something special as, as a celebration. When that celebration happens, if that celebration happens, you will be able to find us on TikTok and Instagram at Overdue Rental Show, on Twitter at Rentals Overdue, and on Facebook at Overdue Rentals. But if you would like to email us love letters, suggestions, uh, telexes that you may try, try to send us, but we don't use telex anymore, or even villas in the south of France, indeed form, PDF. Uh, it must be legible. Our lawyers are very strict about that. You can email us at overdurentals at gmail.com. But while I have you, and while you are hunting for those episodes, again, almost 50, there's a lot of road trip content here. I'm just going to say that. Uh, you can find us wherever you ethically source your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, Spreaker, Audible. We need to look into an Audible sponsorship because that would be a very nice, that would be a wonderful sort of boon to us. But while you are perusing those podcast platforms, we would love if you would lead it, leave us feedback, rate us, review us, subscribe so you don't miss the future episodes because Overdue Rentals is all about love. It's all about sharing and to keep the rental counter open. We need to know what you want and what you like. Matthew. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.